0: Good morning. Good, good good. All right. All right. So this morning might be a little bit different format. Um, it's not a traditional uh, preaching sermon. It, it's more of a teaching session on biblical community. Um, is there any way to turn that down just a little bit? Thanks. We're talking about biblical community. Uh, biblical community is something that, uh, in my church, we talk about all the time. Uh, that could be just because I was a two-year intern for small groups at our church, and that was always the topic. But I'm convinced that biblical community—thank uh, you, sounds awesome—biblical um, community is something that is lacking, but it talked about a lot in churches today. Uh, community is one of those words that it, that's it's a buzzword. Right, let's get together. Let's have community. Uh, in the seventies, eighties, and nineties, it was fellowship. It's fellowshipping. If you guys remember the church that always had the fellowship hall. Let's get after the service. We'll be fellowshipping, uh, having a potluck dinner, <clears throat> potluck dinner, and it'll be fellowship. And it, it's just one of those things. It, it became ambiguous, and it's just it meant time together. Um, so we're gonna explore that idea today uh, as we talk about what biblical community is. Um, and I will be available afterwards if you guys have any questions and wanna talk through anything. Um, so it, it'll be a little bit different. I won't be going through a single, single passage. It'll be more of a biblical idea of what biblical uh, community really is. Um, let, let's start with a word of prayer and then let's get into this. Gently, Father, Lord, um, we just pray that you, you soften our hearts and open our eyes uh, to the concept of community. God, uh, as your church, that your bride, you've called us to live together in unity, to, to be together, to be uh, um, your ambassadors, your torchbearers here in the darkness. And it is important for us and in an age that is increasingly about individuality, for us to live as a, a collective group known as a group more than individually. So God, I pray that uh, we set our pride aside, um, we're, that you convict us, and God, that we um, move increasingly towards a life together as a church. Uh, so I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit works in us here and uh, just, just blesses us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So I grew, I grew up in the church, no big surprise there. Uh, Dad's pastor has always, well, I guess the last few years hasn't been my pastor, but for a lot of my life was my pastor. My idea of Christian community growing up was not a good one, Uh, not because of my house it wasn't a good one, Um, but uh, I remember in 2004, my dad resigned from a church, and I'll never forget the service when he resigned. Uh, When he resigned, uh, he, he preached a sermon. And then he read a letter, and I uh, was sitting in the back section, no, no, front row of the back section of this church. And when he read his letter, there was a man in the front row, or third row, who was a um, youth group leader who pulled out a newspaper and was reading it when my dad was reading his resignation uh, and stormed out. Um, then when my dad was done, half, more than half the people stood up and were, seemed to be grieved, And another half seemed to be cheering, I saw high-fiving, I saw uh, a church that that presumed to be a church uh, torn apart, and everyone uh, came to me, put their hand on my shoulder and said, don't let this affect you. Don't let this get you down, okay? God's got great plans for you. Um, Well, that, that did affect me in a very large way, significant way, and the way that it affected me was it made me angry with God. Church community uh, informed the way that I saw God. It's a way that non-church people view God is through His people so often, and so I became very upset. And I thought we could never really have true biblical community. As part of the reason why, for so many years, I've not wanted to really be a a full pastor because, in some ways, I'm terrified—had been terrified—of what the church can do. It can ruin people. And that's biblical community. The world doesn't make sense of it. They make Hollywood movies. They, they made one called Save. If you haven't seen it, don't worry about it. But many years ago, it was the scene where this woman got pregnant out of wedlock. Everyone gossiped about it. And then it, and that's the way the world views biblical community. It's, it, it's hypocritical. It's superficial. And it's not real. And so a lot of the world views they're apologetic towards why not to have biblical community is because you're authentic. Be yourself. You want to sin, go. I accept you in your sin. It's really enticing, quite honestly. But the question is, why is a church can't we have that? Why can't we have that? So that's what we're going to talk about today. That's uh, my story with biblical community, biblical community and, it, and it didn't start well, and it's taken me a long time to really begin to understand it. So if you have notes, um, I'll try and write some stuff here on the whiteboard uh, just so you can gather some of the outline, um, but I don't have like elaborate diagrams today or anything for that. So point one, we are created by community for community. We were created by community for community with social networking blowing up and growing up, people beginning to think, well, our, our generation, I'm getting a little bit older now, but younger now, early 20s, uh, and late teens, are all about social networking. Why do you have to be with your friends all the time? Why do you have to talk to them all the time? I I know a lot of you now have Facebook, and so it's not something for teenagers and early 20-somethings now. Uh, A lot of people are posting pictures and uh, messaging. We love to be in community, and there's a reason for that. Now, the question is, is technology making us want to be in community, or is technology reflecting our innate desire to be relational with people? I think it's the latter. I think it it brings out a God-given desire to be relational with people. So um, one of the universal endeavors um, is for us to find out where we've come from. If we find out where we come from, it helps give us purpose, helps give us identity. Um, I was speaking at a middle school chapel uh, about a month ago, and I always love to talk about uh, superheroes and in comics, I, I, I'm not really nerdy like that, but I, I appreciate it because I think there's a lot of gospel truth in that. Um, if you think about it, Batman, Superman, Spider-Man—hopefully, uh, you guys are somewhat familiar with this—they're um, all su- superhero, su- supernaturally made. But what's the inherent problem they have? They don't have a father. Every single one of them don't have a father. All died. All good men, and they all go through some kind of juvenile stage where they don't know where they're supposed to be. Superman can't play football because he's going to kill somebody in high school, right? And he gets dogged on. People make fun of him, but he could, I mean, he, no one could tackle him. <laughs> and so deep down, he's trying to wrestle with who am I? Where did I come from? Well, how does he get it straight? He gets it straight when he gets a message from his father telling him, you're from Krypton. This is your purpose. This is why you're here. You're here to protect the people. Okay. It, it, now, <laughs> I, I'm not trying to make more of that than what it is, but I think it's significant. And it, and it, In that, as people, we don't know what we're supposed to do next until we realize where we came from and what our purpose is. So let's go back, let's find out what was our purpose. And to find that out, we have to go back to Genesis 1 and 2. Evidently, when when Superman finally realizes his purpose, he begins to live in that purpose. Spider-Man, every other one, when they realize, they get the message from the Father. Iron Man, every single one of them. And I think it's a secular world crying out for... Purpose and identity. So, in Genesis, it says, "Let us create man in our image." So, there at the beginning of the human story, we learned something significant about our identity. We are created in the image of God Himself. Uh, his character and His attributes are—they're uh, not duplicated, uh, right? We're not all-knowing all loving, obviously we know that, we're not all be, uh, uh, all present in every place, but somehow we reflect God's image. How is that? So when we look deeper uh, into our Creator, we don't just learn about Him, we learn something about ourselves. When we learn about God, we learn about how He created us to be. Um, now, now here's where it gets good. The hint of the Trinity is in Genesis 1 and it unfolds the rest of the Bible through to show us who God is. God is three persons independently existing as one. Um, I can't really explain it any better than that. The more you, you explain it, the more you get it wrong. Uh, people who say, well, it's like an egg. You know, the shell is the Father. The, the, uh, the white part is the Son, and the yolk is the Holy Spirit. It's wrong because that's not three. In <laughs> we don't need to get into the Trinity. It's, it's, it's wrong. It's not orthodox. But it helps us understand three different things. One, we, we can't understand it. It's inconceivable. But what we know from that for the purpose of this message is that God is a community within himself. And it is inherent to the nature of God. God is always relational to himself. When Christ came, who was the closest person he was to? The Father, right? He always prayed to the Father. And he was never alone until he died on the cross. That was the only time in human existence and world existence that the Trinity was never completely interconnected and it was for our sake. That's what made it so grueling. It wasn't just the the nails. And the night before, Christ wasn't wasn't talking about the nails. He was talking about hell on earth, separation from the Father. So that is who we are made by, a community. Okay, This means we're figuring out how to live. We don't just look to the commands and the character of God. We look at the triune roles and relationships of God within himself. Um, So point one. We can only reflect God's image when we live in community. Okay, that is a biblical understanding. When we live in community, in biblical community, now we are starting to live up to the image that God created us to be in. Because he is relational, we are by design relational creatures. Because God himself wasn't alone. He called it not good when man was created alone. So he creates a woman. And then he says, it is very good now. It's very good. So he makes man in relationship, and that is good. So God created his family to be his representation. So if you think about that, sorry, I'm really thirsty. If you think about that, the image of God is to mirror God from earth to himself. We are a representation on earth of God. And so as, as, as man multiplied uh, we were supposed to rule over and carry out God's will. We were the priests and kings that were supposed to live on earth as a representation of God to, to uh, other men and to animals and to the world. Okay, so uh, that went awry. That representation expanded from family to a nation when God taped, tapped Abraham to be the father of God's people. And the story of the rest of the Old Testament is one of a people and their fulfillment and failures to living in this calling, in the New Testament, Christ said he came with a new covenant for a new people, a new community called the church, and this church would together be the means by which God would work on earth. In John 17, Christ is praying to the Father, and he says, I pray that they are one as I am one. That's a pretty tight community, right? If you think about it, they're interdependent, the Father and the Son, eternally close, and and God is saying, I want my church to be close as I am close to the Father. It's one being, two, two interdependent persons in one being. That's a close community. God identified himself with a community. God is a community, and he made us for community. We we're created to live in it. So what's the implication? Community in your church cannot be couched or communicated as a program, Okay. It is not a Tuesday night, seven o'clock group. It's not coming here and meeting for an hour and leaving. Okay, that is not true biblical community. You don't wanna be a program-driven community. You don't wanna be um, just a life group-driven community. It is an all-in process. It is life on life. It's total buy-in, total buy-in. In the 1950s, 1950s maybe, it started to become more of a contractual conversation about community uh, or just relationship. Um, we stopped talking about covenantal groups. We started talking about contractual groups. And so we started, it started um, reflecting, because of our legal society, in, in more common marriages, relationships, became contractual, not covenantal. And that, that plays out in everything from marriages to how people approach the church. They approach it contractually, not covenantally. Okay, and here's the distinction. A contractual group says, oh, what's the difference between a contract and a covenant? Contract is, you say, okay, here's, here's what I want to do. You come, you meet these, these things that I desire, and I'll stay. You meet the agreement. If you don't, contract's broken, I leave. Okay, people say that in marriage. They say, man, I didn't sign up for this. She changed. He, man, man he's, he just doesn't care. He's not sensitive. He wasn't like this when we dated. Okay, I would have married him if he was sensitive the whole time. Right? And, it, well, people change. I'm out. So what, what they're really saying is, even though I made covenantal agreement before God, I really meant it contractually. So once they changed, I'm out. I'm out. They didn't meet the required agreement before God. And so it becomes contractual. People do that when they come to church. Man, I came there. If the pastor was 40 minutes, I would stay. If we had a nursery, man, that would be great. Okay? But they didn't. And now I'm out. And the problem is, is... People come and go in churches and stay, go one time a month, two times, man, I wish I could make it, but I've got something going on Tuesday nights, and they fit it down the list of priorities because it's contractual and not covenantal. We see that at a church all the time. People come in, they say, man, I wanted to be in this small group, but I don't like this guy, I don't like that girl, and man, I really was looking for best friends, I'm like, well, I'm sure Jesus was looking for best friends. And he was killed. But I'm glad he loved us covenantally, not contractually. So you got to go all in. If you want biblical community, it's all in. It's all in. It's saying, man, uh, and here's the difference with covenant. Covenant says, um, I'm going to love you at my cost. Okay? Man, I know you are hard to love, but I'm going to love you. Most... um, uh, People would say that marriage, a lot of times in America, is not, it's more contractual than covenantal. But a relationship that is covenantal is one between parents and children. Man, you, kid, cusses out the parent, runs out the door, I hate you, I hate you. Parents are like, but I love you so much. I love you, I can't believe that. Ironically, that's where we reflect most often a covenantal relationship you should have with a married person, you're most having with a child. And that's the way it should be with a church, because it is a family. At my cost, I love you. So that's what Christ did. Christ came and took the worst of us before he ever took the best. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't say, man, I came here to be served, to be loved. I'm out. And I'm so glad he didn't. So part of it is this. Um, Part of it is, is that in programs, programs can reinforce a box you check off. You say, man, Tuesday night I got... I got uh, I got workout here Monday, Tuesday night group, I've got uh, Wednesday is youth soccer, uh, Thursday date night, Friday is, and, and man, I, I, I'm living a healthy life and we compartmentalize, so that's what we do. If you view it community as a program, you compartmentalize Christianity and you reduce it to a couple hours, okay? And, and, and then the, the problem is you think you have a healthy life. C.S. Lewis said Christianity is something by which you view everything. So instead of viewing it as a list of priorities that make you healthy, and when you're not getting what you want, uh, I can't, man, I, I, we got to go to town this week. Uh, I said we were going to go biking in the Appalachian. I, uh, instead, take it off the list and read everything else by Christianity, by your relationship with Christ, and then you love your community through the gospel. Group life is not a priority. It is something that is, that is innate into your survival You don't put down on a list of priorities drinking water today, do you? No. (laughs) That's just something you know to do to live life. Community life isn't a priority. It's something you do to live life. Programs can change. Those are different modes. But community life requires you to all buy in, all buy in, and not live contractual lives, covenantal lives. Point two, we know more about God through community than we ever could alone. When we ever could alone. C.S. Lewis was a, a part of uh, a group of three people. Well, it's called the group of three, and they would, they would hang out, spend time together, discuss literature, philosophy, um, and one of the friends died. And in his book, Mere Christianity, he discusses the idea that he thought, man, I'm going to know the one friend who, is, who survived uh, way better as a result of the other friend dying. And the problem is, is that he, what he came to understand is that the relationship with this other friend um, uh, could, would, could never be the same, could never duplicate what it was when the three of them were together. Because the third person could bring out, who passed away, could bring out things about his surviving friend that he never could. Parts of his humor, parts of conversation, of, of intellectual conversation. So when the three of them came out together and would hang out, the friend who died could bring out parts of his friend he never could. And so in actuality, he learned less about his friend, his surviving friend, when the friend who died passed away. What does that show us? That shows us that in community, we learn more about God and how God is working through other people than we ever could on our own experiences, okay? And so that, that's something that, that, doesn't, that doesn't sound innate, but it seems true. Um, now, I'd heard the story, and I didn't live through this. You may say I was one or two, but it doesn't really count. Um, when, when my parents lived in Indiana, we uh, could not a- afford a freezer, apparently. It was a freezer, right? Okay. Um, sort of a fact check. That's bad to do it when you're telling the story. Um, we couldn't afford a freezer. And from my understanding, my parents told me this later, they said, we're not... We're not gonna tell anyone we need a freezer, we're just gonna pray and we wanna show David and Sarah how God meets needs. So they prayed and they prayed and they prayed. And a couple of months later, there's a knock at the door, and someone says, Pastor, I was at a store and I was buying a freezer for myself, and I realized Pastor doesn't have a freezer. And I, I just I wanna get, I wanna bless you. I wanna give you a freezer. Now this man had no idea that my my parents were praying for a freezer. God just let it on their hearts, and it affirmed God's plan and love for them. Now, I I didn't live through that, but I hear that story, and what does it do? It encourages me that God meets the needs of the people, and he brings them along. Right Now, in my experience, I haven't ever needed a freezer. I live with four guys. Actually, a freezer is kind of broken right now, but... But I hear that, and it affirms. Community affirms how God is bringing unique individual people along in a story that meshes together. And when you're together and you're sharing testimonies of what God does, it affirms how God is working. That's why you come together. You could never know God. A lot of this um, Ted Kaczynski-type Christianity where it's, man, I hate the church, but I love Jesus, it's, it's trash. You cannot love Jesus and not love his bride said, how many friends, if I dissed my friend's wife, that guy is not going to be my best friend anymore. I'm sorry. So, I also hear stories about, there's a guy that, uh, who, who was in college, my parents told me this story. Guy in college, wanted, needed to go home, someone was sick. Showed up at an airport, didn't have money for a ticket. He's praying, someone walks by, puts cash in his back pocket. Guess what, he's got money to go to to visit his home that he did not have, God met a need. You hear that story, everyone rejoices. But here's the deal, you don't get get together and just share miracle stories. You get together and you hear stories about a woman at my church who's been suffering from breast cancer for years and has multiple surgeries and will probably die. And you hear stories about how God is working in her to share the gospel with people at the hospital and bringing people to church. And there's great joy and sanctification. How about a 16-year-old boy who just passed away at our church from brain cancer? Found out he was 13, he had it. He battled and battled, couldn't go to school anymore. And he he was the biggest evangelist I'd ever seen. And he's sharing the gospel, even though all his friends are planning to go to college, and he's planning to go to heaven. You hear stories like that? You, You can't hear that when you're by yourself out of community. You need community to know about how God is working. So, there is hope for community. It means marriages are meant to be healthy, enriching relationships that, that reflect the love of God for us. It means parenting is to be f- uh, a love filled relationship reflecting the care of the Father for us. Bruce Ware, in his book, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, talks about the implications of being made in the image of the Trinity. He says, The very fact that God, though singular in nature, is plural and societal in person indicates we should not view ourselves as isolated individuals who happen to exist in close proximity. Okay, so we're not people often in the end who just gather together, but rather as con- interconnected, interdependent, relational persons in community. God intends that there be a created community of persons in which there is an interconnection and interdependence so that what one does affects another. What one needs can be supplied by another. And what one seeks to accomplish may be assisted by another. We are to be so interconnected. We know the needs and and hopes and dreams of the people in community together. So, we are made for community. Now, the next few concepts um, drill down more into application of this. But the foundation is we are made by community for community. And it's a good thing. To live anything less than in community is subhuman. So, point two. Community, uh, and this is giant point two. Community is messy. It is messy. Okay, I'm sure we all know this. Um, I had a friend who has counseled me in years past. And he said, you know, I was engaged to my wife. um, And leading up to the marriage, I said to my mom, mom, mom. this is just so easy. We will never fight. We just agree on everything. It's great. It's unbelievable. And then he went on to tell me, and then we got married, and the next three years were like hell on earth. It was bad. We disagreed about everything. And what he began to realize is, I didn't really know her. She didn't really know me. Community that, doesn't, that isn't messy is superficial. Okay, a sign that there is real community and real confession is that it is messy. Okay? Don't be surprised at how messy it is. That's a good sign because we are all sinners. Our, our, our pastor says, whenever he marries people, he's like, man, this is a great thing. There's, there's two problems. You're a sinner and you're a sinner. That's the biggest problem. So when you get more than just two people to create a church, it's going to be messy. It'll be worse probably than just a marriage. It's true. It's true. So, the, so, what do you do? You, you, you have to accept that. You have to anticipate that. You have to desire that. Not to say, I'm seeking to make this messy, but you don't run from it. Because you desire true community beyond what is easy, right? If, if, if it's a covenantal community, it's not easy, it's hard, it demands sacrifice. And so, if you seek that more than anything else, then you have to say, We got to go into this. There's a problem here. There's a confession. So in Genesis 3, the Bible records the moment often referred to as the fall of man. In Genesis 2, God tells Adam not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the next chapter, Genesis 3, Eve decides to disobey God and eats the fruit. Then he gives it to Adam, and the world is changed. Sin enters the world, and man is separated from God, and man is separated from man. So from the beginning, we are separated because of sin. So God said man would no longer have a peaceful but hard life. Woman would have childbearing pain and seek uh, to live over her husband. And things have always ended in death. In Romans five twelve, Paul gives this divinely inspired explanation of the significance of this event. He said, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. The world is broken and therefore now we don't live in the world that should be. So, what are some, some expectations? Point one, we need to have realistic expectations for group life. Okay, people sin, and it requires confession. Okay, in group life, there should be a sign. I, I, I had a small group for two years. <clears throat> there was a men's group, and I could say, man, I could judge group life not by how we ate donuts together. Um, often, we didn't even eat because guys forget to bring food to the group. Uh, that's why co-ed groups are way better the women all make the food and guys forget about it Um, and then are thankful for it when it's there Um, so I could judge uh, a basic litmus test is confession of sin a group that's how you know there's a healthy group when there's confession there's there's health why? 2 Corinthians tells us grace is made known in weakness the gospel is proclaimed when we confess sin if we keep it in what is that telling us? It's telling us, I can't trust him. There's pride. If I trust my brother or sister in Christ with my sin, I, I, I'll be rejected. I'll be, and all these anti-gospel truths come in. I can't confess this. They'll look, they'll think I, I, uh, worse of me. Man, that's a good thing. Because when you confess, your brother or sister can now speak truth into your life that is the gospel. Okay, your weakness. Paul says, I am the least of these. He understood the gospel. So when we confess sin, it removes the pride. We're able now to be restored by the gospel and people can speak truth in each other's lives. Confession is a litmus test of the gospel. If you're not confessing sin, you are not living in the gospel. I can't, you you can't have it both ways. You can't have people look up to you and look good and also say, I'm in my weakness. Christ is made known. There is no personal weakness. There is weakness. You just don't know it. There's lostness. Okay. And so that's part of the problem is social networking that we get on these Facebook accounts. Here's the problem with Facebook, is that it's self-marketing. I project myself to other people in the way I want them to perceive me. Not always. I don't say this is all everyone who does this. But it's part of the problem. This is what our culture does with desiring relationship far away rather than right here or in your neighborhood is it gives you an opportunity to put your best foot forward to people who don't know you. That's why, that's why it's so much easier to become best friends with someone in California you're Facebooking with than someone right here because they don't know the fact that you don't clean up your room and do your laundry and don't keep an upkept house and are late to things. Okay? When you return email, the people aren't like, hey, I should have been here five minutes ago. Okay? There's confrontation when you live physically close to someone. When you're far away having a relationship, put your best foot forward and they never know you. Sin and gross things grow in private. A garden that grows in the dark grows very weird things. And it takes community life and confession of sin to restore that. Second, we have a a saying at our church. um, A plumb line that we all rally around, it says... We are sinner first, sinned against second. Sinner first, sinned against second. Okay, as community is messy, and you must verbalize this because because pride would have it the other way around. Pride would say you are sinned against first, and then judge and executioner second. All right? The gospel reverses that. Remind us. Reminding us that it was me, it was you, who sinned against God first. You sent him to the cross. You rejected him. We weren't born Christians. but We were born people who hated God and desired to be God of our own lives. So we are sinners first, sinned against second. Nothing will save you more headaches and frustration than remembering what Paul says in Romans 5.12. Death spread to all men. Why? Because all sinned. Remember, Christ's death paid the penalty of our sin. So, in the eyes of God, he sees Christ's sinlessness, not our sin. Doesn't mean we're able to stop sinning for the rest of our lives. People sin to truth. People sin. And the only way to go through that is to stop saying, you sinned against me. You cut me off. You're not nice to me in church. You don't welcome me. You don't have me over for dinner. You one to me during the testimony time. You know, I, all these things. I feel left out. Start counting up, you know, how I was wronged. And then you become sinned against first, executioner second. But more than that, if anyone had any reason to complain, it's Christ. The creator of the world shows up on earth, should have been worshipped. He was lauded on in heaven I mean, you Talk about um, <laughs> printing money. God speaks gold into existence. Heaven has streets of gold. Here there's fights for little nuggets of gold. And he shows up here, born of a manger. People reject him. People hated him. Goes to the cross and dies for you and me. Okay? So you need to remember how much okay, you have sinned against God. He forgave you. And how much other people sin against you. And we, uh, we live for that. Sinned. Sinner first, sinned against second. Third, everyone has a story. Everyone has a story, everyone in this church has a story. Um, there's time in group life and community life where it's easy to just stereotype people. That's angry guy, that's cry baby, that's, uh, you know, that's ch- a chatty Kathy doll, she will not stop. Where's the off switch? There's times in small group where I've thought, man, uh, that's, that's tough. And it, it's an entertaining exercise, but it is, it is not a good perspective. We do that we have to realize people have stories. God is bringing people through life and for a purpose. And when you begin to know how God is working with someone, you stop stereotyping them, you stop uh, reducing them to just some observation and judgment you've made, and you begin to come along and encourage them for the meeting and exhortation of the gospel to send them. A great exercise for this is to ask someone in the church to go out for coffee this week. Hey man, I just. What's your testimony? How did God save you? What's your, what does He want you to do in life? Life mapping. What is your story? Share stories. How God has brought you through stuff. When I was in college, one of the craziest people on my floor uh, was this guy who uh, he, I felt like he, he loved to wrestle a little bit too much, a little bit too rough. Uh, not that, you know, my, I like to wrestle, but I felt like people could get hurt. Um, and so. But here's what I find out when I talk to him. He became one of my best friends. He was born into a situation where his mom had AIDS, okay? And the dad, um, what was it? They were separated. Uh, She had remarried. They both had AIDS. The dad died when he was three. Uh, His mom died when he was like five. Stepdad died when he was eight. His grandma took him in. He was not a Christian, was a pothead, uh, was by all accounts kind of a rough kid. He gets saved when he's about 19, ends up coming to Moody, and uh, did really well in school. God saved him. He's a pastor in Detroit, in downtown Detroit, saving souls and incredibly sanctified. Everyone has a story, and God is bringing people by. If you reduce them to an interaction, you're a judger, and there's pride, and you're destroying community. Remember, it's, co- it's covenantal, not contractual. Everyone has a story. Get to know it. Get to know it. Point three, community is centered on Jesus, okay? Community as its essence is a group of people that share something in common, right? It's the two words, common unity, community. Um, So whether it's a reality TV show, people get together, watch a show together, go on trips together, go hiking, food, there's a common entity. Um, What I'm saying may seem obvious at first, but its application to group life will be significant. The church is centered around Jesus. We are first a gospel community. Jesus is what we have in common. Jesus is what we have in common. When you look at the New Testament, you see a bunch of people who should never be together, right? It says Jews and Greeks living together in community, calling each other brothers. That is worse than 1950s black and white relations, and that is bad. Now, uh, Paul writes a letter to Philemon saying, hey, uh, you remember your slave who ran away and stole from you? Okay, greet him when you come back as your brother. Okay, Onesimus, when he comes back, yeah, I know he stole from you, put it on my account. We are all brothers now. Okay, that is completely foreign. Uh, so it's, it is founded on Jesus. Jesus is what unites. It is the gospel. Um, I used to think growing up that the gospel is what you believe to get saved and then once you become saved, you become someone who just becomes self-righteous. All right? So I, I ask Jesus into my heart, and then through my life, I just, I read the Bible, I do good things, and, and then that's it. As the gospel, there was the invitation to salvation, and then beyond that, it's up, it's up to me to love him. I'm sorry, and I pray this way. I'm sorry, God, I didn't, essentially, I didn't live up to your standards. Here's what the gospel says. The gospel, in his basic essence, we say at my church is, Jesus in my place. Jesus in my place. Okay, I was deserving death. I was deserving God's wrath. And Jesus came and pushed me out of the way and stood and took the wrath. Jesus in my place. That It's that pithy, that short. Now, the gospel is much bigger than that. It has application that is much greater than that. right? In Luke 24, Jesus teaches the people about the gospel by saying, the whole scriptures, all of them are about me. When you read the Old Testament, it's about Christ. You read the Psalms, all of them relate back to Christ. Everything relates back to Jesus. And so in group life, we have something called gospeling one another. Okay, we're one anothering, we're gospeling one another. We're speaking the truth to one another. And here's how it works. The gospel isn't just this two-dimensional story about how he died. It applies, it takes root, and applies to money, it applies to sex, it applies to everything. Here's how, I'll give you two practical examples. Uh, When I worked at Starbucks, I used to get an example, a question, where people would ask me why I don't have premarital relations. Okay, now I could at, I could ask that, or I could I could say, well, because it's wrong. Okay, it, it is. Bible says, <laughs> don't do that. It's a very simple way. Here's what the gospel says: If I have premarital relations, what that says is I'm taking the best of this person, without ever taking the worst. So I'm saying I would I want to take the best but I'm not committing my life to this person. I'm still holding back my bank account, my time. I'm holding back certain things I don't want to give. So I'm giving, I'm taking your best, and I'm not giving you in case I want to get away out. That's why there's a big difference between people who could habitate and say, well, it's like marriage. It's not like marriage because you can get out at any time. When in marriage you say, I'm giving 100% of me, like community, covenantal community, I give 100%, my time, my money, my bank account, every, everything there is, I give to you. And then you take the best. Premarital sex says, I take the best, and I may not stick around. I'm not gonna give you certainly the things I value the most. See how it, it switches? Here's what Christ did, here's the gospel of that. Christ came, and we hated him. So here's what he said, he said, I'm gonna take you as my people, and I'm gonna love you, and it's gonna cost me my life, okay? And, and, and it, it will require my, my pain and my suffering, and then when you are glorified eventually in heaven, I'm gonna take your best. I'm gonna take your best. That's the gospel. The gospel changes that. So you don't stop saying, hey, don't do this. You end up saying you're not living in the gospel. Here's money. Here, money. 2 Corinthians 8. What does Paul do? Paul uses the gospel to get people to live generously. God, who prints money, was praised by the angels and people, comes to earth and foregoes all that to live in complete and adjunct poverty. Okay? Philippians 2, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Talk about how he gave everything up to live in uh, poverty, why? So that you could be rich. You could be sons and daughters of God. He became poor to make you rich. Here's, what, here's how we live. We say, I'll give when I have enough. I'll give, uh, or I will take from people cutting corners. I, that's what I want. I want to I keep. I want to keep. God said, these are a tool. These are a resource. I'm going to give them to win you. That, and you say, I'm not saying you in particular, but in general, we say, at your cost, I'm gonna take money. And God says, at my cost, I'm gonna give you everything. That's gospeling one another in conversation. People are struggling, you walk it through that way. That's powerful. Why? Because you're showing them Jesus. When you say, stop it, right? Bob Newhart used to have a, a jokey counseling situation, and someone would say, okay, I'm struggling with this, he'd say, stop it. And someone said something, he said, stop it. You can't do that because you've got to replace something more beautiful. Jesus is more beautiful. He's better than. And in gospel community, we're showing people how Jesus is better than our idols. So we need to speak the actual gospel. We need to pray over one another. And the only way you can speak the gospel is confession of sin. Confession of sin. Okay, two more points here. Uh, number four, discipleship happens in relationships. Okay, so we are a community, not a gathering. We don't just get together for small moments of time. You, so we, you are inviting people to live life, not just two hours with you, okay? It, it just kind of fleshing out what I talked about earlier. You're inviting people to live life on life, Bonhoeffer talks about this, Schaefer and Mark of a Christian talks about this, is that true community is life on life. When we talk about people living together as a church in the New Testament, they literally live together uh, in the church in Thessalonica, in the whole community of Thessalonica. People, I mean, were right up against each other. You couldn't do anything as a Christian with the people knowing you became a Christian. In our society, we have fences going up, we barely hang out and leave our house, so, it's not as natural. People would act and everyone knew it because there's no privacy. We as Americans love privacy, we love it. And it's wrong. In a lot of ways, it's satanic. And we need our alone time, but we, we, we require community. So, we need interactions where we're hanging out in groups, but we need one on one interactions for confession and community. Uh, two, learn the rhythms of your life. Okay, this doesn't mean you schedule even more meetings. Some of you are strapped in here saying, Jonathan. Okay, I barely have time to see my wife. How am I going to spend time with all these other people? Here's how you do it. was one of the ways. And I found it incredibly effective. Do you shop at the grocery store? I, I, I don't know if that's a rhetorical question. I, I uh, probably. I would assume most people probably do, right? Most people don't, probably don't have a farm behind their house. Shop with a friend from the church, a community friend. Invite them along. I'm going to grocery shopping. Want to come with me? Right. Do you watch a certain TV show? Invite someone over to watch it with you. Uh, do you get f- fast food or, um, or healthy food after church? I don't need fast food. But it, it is, I've heard it's delicious. Mm. <laughs> so, if you get a meal after church, invite, invite someone to come along with you. Don't add more things. Invite them into your life. Put life on life. You're going to go to the gym? Invite them to the gym with you. Invite them into your life. It's life on life, not adding small programs. It's the way you live. Um, I learned this. One of the biggest ways, let me say this. One of the pe- people who, the church you tend to have the biggest problem with this is suburban churches. I made the mistake <clears throat> that few people in their early 20s make. Well, when I graduated college, I moved to a suburb. <laughs> Should have moved to the city. Um, and here's why. Um when I when I moved to Milwaukee Wisconsin I actually moved to a small suburb called Pewaukee it's not a romantic name but it's called Pewaukee and it's 30 miles west of Milwaukee It's not as transient but there's a lot of big suburban churches Now at Sundays <clears throat> I would I would mostly spend my Sundays by myself I lived with a 50-year-old man who was always gone and I would make a microwave of dinner and I would watch some TV and I'd hang out. But I went to church. I went to this local community church that had probably about 1,500 people, and I would hang out, and I would talk with people. And here's the problem. They would all get together, and at the end of the service, they would all go hang out with our family. Few of those people ever considered transients because most of those people grew up in that area and never considered other people not having friends. And so they think, oh, well, I've got my family. They have friends. They have groups. Uh, all right, let's go. Family, let's roll out. Jones, come on, Jones family, let's get on the bus. It was a big ordeal. When I finally got invited to a family's uh, dinner on a Sunday afternoon, Um, I I really had a question as to whether do I say, man, I'm struggling by myself. I've been here for months. I haven't been invited to anyone's home. Do I say, man, guys, invite me in, or... Or when I went over, I just was kind of like, I, I, it's a, such a big ordeal to invite me over and get everything ready. And they were so stressed out it didn't feel like I could have life on life with them. Right? I mean, if it's, we got, oh, well, we got to get the family ready to have you over. And it's like, well, how do I confess? How do I tell you what's going on? I don't really feel like you guys want to be open. It's nice. Thank you for the dinner. And so it's consanguineal relationships, consanguineal blood relationships. It, it, so it, it's, The problem is, is, is that suburban churches, a lot of times, view the family as really themselves, and then they'll leave and have family time afterwards. And when I moved to the city, I finally met other 20-somethings who had nothing to do on a Sunday, and we got together and we had family life. We need to, as a church, stop viewing our family as people that you birthed or married because... There is other blood family. There's other blood family. If you are saved by Christ, you are blood family. You are a family that Christ paid for. And that is far more miraculous than someone giving birth. People do oh, that's the miracle of life. Miracle of life is Christ dying on a cross. Christ becoming man, dying on a cross to save you. And now is the one that is making you alive. Okay, that is a blood family. Not just someone that you birth. You've got to stop seeing that because Christ uses a lot of metaphors for the church and, and family is one of them. Do you view the people in your church as a family? When You start seeing that, you stop becoming a consumer, you, you start thinking, how can I give? So the real blood family. F- uh, family. Build margin into your life. Just make sure, I say all this, you're not maxing out your schedule this week, and then you're, you're, you're burned out. Just make sure you're adding this to your life. It is, it is first a commitment that you're making, and then there's application to what you're actually doing. And the last one, point, point five, we are a missional community, a missional community. Have you ever noticed in the Bible how God seemed to go to great lengths to use people to accomplish his purposes? Okay, as we've said before in this training, people really are God's plan A. We say that at my church. The church is God's plan A. Okay, didn't make a mistake. We are God's plan A for changing this world. People are the mission, and people carry out the mission. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that we have been reconciled to God and are now entrusted with the message of reconciliation, Maybe the thought that catches me most is verses 14 and 15 where it says, For the love of God controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all, that those who might live no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. We are controlled by the love of Christ. It steers us. It should. So what that means, here's the application. We live for him. You're about to be about his business, and I have news for you. His business is people. He loves your neighbor as much as he loves you. This is incredibly convicting for me to even say because I know I don't live this way, but I know it's true. What he loves, guess what? You are now to love. What he hates in sin, you are now to hate. He loves people. You are to love people. The more we are controlled by the love of Christ, the more we long to see people reconciled to Him. God was adding people daily to the early church. How? He wasn't just beaming people up in, in, into the church. Non Non-Christ, Christians were able to watch Christians interacting, loving each other, providing goods, caring for one another, singing songs and thanksgiving, taking the Lord's Supper together. And people observed this and proclaimed the gospel to them. This is why we want good community in central Pennsylvania, neighborhood groups, <clears throat> so you can believe God for your neighborhood. Why would we settle for anything less? What does this mean for, for your life? Now, do you pray for people in your neighborhood? Or do you get upset when they build fences? Are you upset when, when, when someone's not nice to you? Are you praying for them? It's just three bits of application. One, pray for them. Believe God will save people you know who aren't Christians this year. I believe one of the biggest obstacles to people coming to faith through us is our own unbelief. That God, <clears throat> that God will do something. We refuse to believe God might actually save people. So we hesitate to step out and act on belief that we really don't have. God saved people just not through me. They lack faith. But we are missionaries. We are sent here. Jonah was sent to Nineveh. Paul was sent to multiple places, and you are sent to Mechanicsburg. How do I know that? Because you're an ambassador for Christ. Paul says, and guess where you are? Mechanicsburg, or somewhere else around here. That's how I know you're a missionary. It's not rocket science. Where am I, God? Where do you want me to go? He wants you to go right here, right now. You may open a door down the road to some place in Africa, but guess what? He has you here, and you won't be effective overseas. And you certainly aren't to outsource missions to people overseas. They're doing what you're supposed to be doing here. Do you pray for them? Do you stand on the way saying, you people are going to hell, I don't want you to go. So, number two, create an environment that welcomes non-Christians, then invite them in. In your neighborhood, are you creating an environment that is, you don't wanna have like a cult type meeting. It's like, hey, come on over for dinner, and then last 30 minutes, hey, uh, are you going to die tonight? And it's like, well, d- develop a relationship. I- if there's inroads, share the gospel. I'm not saying don't share the gospel. But what I'm saying is and make it inviting for them. Don't invite them over to just feel like you just want to go through a spiel. Uh, uh, you know, a better example <clears throat> would be timeshare. Okay? It's free food if you hear the message. You know? well, we can go into my pool. Just listen to this 30-minute spiel first. right? It's not timeshare Christianity and community in your neighborhood. You're inviting them in at your cost, becoming relational with them. In a recent national survey of 18 to 35-year-old non-Christians, 61% said they'd be willing to study the Bible with a friend. 61% of non-Christian people said they'd be willing to study the Bible with a friend. And 46% said they'd be willing to come to a Bible study if invited by a friend. These numbers were higher with people over 35, higher than three out of five. People are more willing to engage the Bible than we are willing to engage with them. Um, what well, are some simple ways? Uh, we, have a, we have a great college ministry at my church called Campus Outreach. Um, we, we have a lot of college students in the area. I think we have close to 200,000 college students when everyone's in session between UNC, Duke, NC State, North Carolina Central, Southeastern, numerous schools. Uh, there might be one or two other cities in the country that have more. Maybe Boston, maybe LA. We have a lot. We're definitely a, a college area in a lot of ways. And so this college ministry is something far more effective than I've ever seen in my life. They go and they live life with, with freshmen in college who just move in. They don't invite them to this big ski thing in December and then hit them up with the gospel. They live life with them. So on move-in day, this guy who's uh, I think was about 28, he was 28 when it happened, now he's about 32, um, said on move-in day with freshmen, they would show up, they would help people move in, they would, they, would, they would talk to them about life, become friends, go play basketball with them, just do life, do life with them. Um, the obvious question for me was, you're like 28, he's 18, don't you think he thinks that's a little odd? <laughs> it's not like 21 Jump Street for Christianity where you're undercover, coming back as an older guy, as a younger guy. Um, this is what he said to me. Uh, he said, no, he said, no one ever asked me that question, in fact. He said, 18, 19-year-old kids are so self-absorbed, they never even think to ask me about myself. So what do I do? I just keep asking good questions. I keep talking to them about life. Eventually, second semester, they find out they've known me. It's not that weird. <laughs> it's not that weird. By that time, I've shared the gospel with them. They know we're a real community, And a lot of them come to faith. And guess what? Now they had a one-on-one relationship. Now they're discipling them. Right? Very natural. Not coming to some big meeting. They get saved and it's like, now make a friend with somebody. And I'm telling you, we have probably a group of 200 uh, maybe going through this process where it used to be just a, a local college minister at a church I mean it is exponentially growing. Kids are getting saved and they're turning developing relationships in frat houses who are getting saved all because they're asking questions and living in community with people. As a community, go to Starbucks. Don't just invite them to your house. When you go to Starbucks, don't be like everybody else. Don't be the worst customer. Right? Cuz this is community now. We we need to create an environment where Christianity is enticing. Christianity or in community is the last the final apologetic. People will not hear our answers defending the Bible if we do not love our neighbor. If you're going to Starbucks with a friend and you look like you're not happy, you're not treating them well and you're giving people the business who work there and they find out you go to this church, man, just please tell them you're you're a Mormon. Please don't (laughs) ruin Christianity for your sake. Go, have group life out in public so people can see authentic community. Look, the church is going to grow. It's not going to grow because there's a rock band up front. The church is not going to grow because of better programs. Now, albeit, I do think aesthetics and music are really important, and you've got to get that right. But the driving force is an authentic, transparent community that no one else has. And here's how it, how it happens. Every other religion doesn't have grace. Every other religion has works. And so deep down, there's fear, insecurity, you know, um, mormonism i hope i did enough to inherit uh, to be an elohim on my own planet okay that's crazy uh, islam says man i hope that the scale goes in my favor and i am he shows me more mercy than judgment the uh, jewish people say I, I gotta live according to the law and, christ, and christianity says you're free christ paid for you he wrote himself into history to be one of us incarnate to die for you and me that's far different from any other religion as far as I'm concerned, there, it is incomparable religion. It should be the class, not comparative religions. Because of grace, we're the only ones. So when we gospel one another, that's different. Everyone else says, hey man, you, you, you got to be a teetotaler because you need to be perfect. Don't drink alcohol, right? That is long. You Here's a rule, list of rules of do's and don'ts. Christianity says you're free. Now, you don't want to choose certain paths in life because you want to live according to the one who loves you. That's more beautiful. When you you go out to a restaurant, don't just leave a track for a tip, okay? They're going to hate you. When you go out, leave a better tip and then maybe leave a track. Give more money, more generously. Live differently than the world so that when they see that, they say, there's something different. And that comes from the root of the gospel of saying, I use my resources to love you. I don't take from you to win. I win when I give. I win when I live sacrificially. I don't want you to have that. Go live a community life in the community around a neighborhood. Invite them in and just love on people. So create a strategy to raise up and plant new, new groups, new life groups around the neighborhood. Uh, raise up, seek out new neighborhoods. Um, we want to see you as a missionary, as we talked about. We um, in the South... SB, SBC has a, has a black eye in our history. And the black eye is that during um, race relations uh, the SBC Southern Baptist Convention did not come down on the right side. We interpreted the Bible uh, in perverse ways um, that made it seem like African Americans were less and there was a lot a lot of pain and shame we've gone through over this. Now there, there's Uh, an African-American man ahead of the SBC. We've come a long way, but there's shame in our past of how rather than showing the gospel, we judged. We judged. And we have have had to come through that. I've run into people at at, at Starbucks when I'm writing papers where a a guy uh, will tell me, he'll say, uh, you know the biggest problem with the Baptists is they don't love people. And he went and told me the history. And I said, you're right, man, you're right. Now, I don't show them our community and say, well, here's why you need to become a Christian, because we have Thursday night game nights. I say you should become a Christian because of Christ, always pointing to Christ. But there's potentially a bigger black eye for this church and others that in a hundred years or even now, if people from heaven could see, people today around us are dying. They're spiritually already dead. Physically, they're dying and they're going to hell. And if we stand here and we treat Secondary things that are part of creation as more important, and we don't say anything, if we don't speak up, they're gonna die and they're gonna go to hell. And that is far more shameful than the SBC in the last 200 years, far more, because at least people can live, at least know Christ and go to heaven. If you don't speak up for people dying, stand in the gap, and try and show people Christ, that's shameful, it's wrong, and it really shows we don't know the gospel. Zacchaeus, when he knew Christ, what did he do? He runs out, he gives generously. Sign of the gospel. So uh, in the next couple weeks um, or months, uh, I may come back if if I'm invited, to have the opportunity to speak on missions. Um, There's a second part of this. Uh, Hopefully we'll be able to schedule something out. But I wanted to talk about community life. It's something that's definitely um, meant a lot to me, especially from my background and how I felt I was wronged. And how now moving forward, man, this is our last great hope, sharing the gospel. People just don't come to church like they used to. They don't. Billy Graham rallies, if he was 50 years younger, not as many people would show up. People just don't come to that stuff. People are skeptical because they've been burned in the past. You need to show them the real gospel. Because they've probably been to churches where the gospel wasn't really proclaimed, wasn't really shown. And it's up to us to show it to them. Christ is using us. He's using us. Be used. Be his ambassadors. Love each other covenantally. That's going to be the thing. That's what's going to keep people. If it's all built on programs, and the programs go down, people will leave. People will stay for authentic gospel community because it's, it's foreign. Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. God, I just, I, I thank you that so often we, we desire our own way. We desire our individuality. And uh, man, we, we are so lost and we think we're so right so often. Lord, and, I, and yet you pursue us. You keep drawing us back, drawing us back, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. I wanted to leave the God I love. Lord, and yet you pursue us. Every time there's a desire for us to love you, it's because your spirit is welling up within us, softening our hearts. Lord, please don't stop doing that in us. We are a wayward people. We need you. Lord, help us to be about our Father's business. Uniting the people through the gospel. And not about and not having divisions over things that are preferences. God, I pray. This week, as we all leave, that we leave as missionaries to the respective, our respective area, sharing the gospel in a workplace, around the neighborhood, wherever we go. God, I pray that we are a people that are gospel-minded, missionally focused. And Lord, I pray that you're just saving people in central Pennsylvania through us and through other people. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.